Um, since the introduction is on these cards, I'll just mention a few other things. The cards are for questions. And uh, go ahead and write questions on here any time during Stephen's talk, during the Q&A. Pass them to people with yellow hats in the aisle, who also have pencils if you need them. They'll come up to me and Kevin Kelly in the front, and we'll bring the uh, best ones up for, uh, for the speaker. Uh, you'll also notice on here that Kevin Kelly is no longer going to be just asking the questions. He'll be answering them uh, the second Friday in March. Uh, he'll be up here doing very interesting stuff from the book he's working on now, uh, What Technology Wants. And it's basically he's done the first history of scientific methodology. Uh, there's been lots of histories of scientific discoveries, but when you look at the methodology, he sees some things that will give you a sense of the next hundred years. Then in April, Jimmy Wales, the uh, despotic nine king of <clears throat> Wikipedia, will be here with the first of a series of vision talks. His is about Wikipedia and the future of free culture. And then uh, two of the sponsors of this series, Chris Anderson from Wired and Will Hurst from everywhere, uh, doing a thing on uh, the long time tale, basically a new economic principle which now incorporates time in it. A person I spent a lot of time paying attention to is Gregory Bateson and uh, his wife, Margaret Mead. I knew Gregory better. Back in the 1930s, when they had been infected by what was brand new cybernetic theory, uh, the idea of feedback, um, they went to Bali in, uh, as Stephen Lansing was just telling me, they invented visual anthropology and did a book called uh, Balinese Character, which is a classic and is still studied by everybody in the business. That was a nice case of field anthropologists being set in a different direction by a very good body of theory, which in that case was cybernetics. Well, the great, well, maybe the grandchild of cybernetics is complex adaptive systems, complexity theory, as it's been manifest at Santa Fe Institute, where Stephen Lansing is a research, uh, research professor. And I've been on their board for 14 years or something. It's where I first saw a version of this talk, not nearly as gorgeous as the one you'll see tonight. And Stephen's a nice case of taking a new body of theory, uh, how complex systems work, emergent behaviors, uh, the kinds of things you can do with agent-based modeling, and bringing that to bear on one of the most mysterious and wonderful bodies of, of uh, behavior in, in Bali. And so, and as you'll see tonight, he is also bringing a new level of visual anthropology. Stephen Lansing. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thanks very much, Stuart. That's very gracious. And I need to apologize to all of you for turning up a week late. I zigged when I should have zagged a while back in a ski hill in Wyoming. So I'm grateful to be here now. And actually, I've been downloading and listening to some of the earlier talks in this series. It's really a very interesting series. So I'm honored to have an opportunity to try and join this conversation. I'm going to take you in a different direction. Um, and actually, I'll wind up talking about the long now, but rather than the physics of time in the future, I'm going to take you down the kind of wandering paths that ecologists and anthropologists take, and we'll wind up in the end, I hope, with something to say about, about time and about the long now. So this is mostly about Bali. Um, so off to Indonesia, 
which has the highest biodiversity on Earth in terrestrial ecosystems, in the forests, and also in the oceans and the coral reefs, but things are not well in the, in the tropics. Less than a third of the coral reefs are still healthy. Most of the Borneo and the Sumatran rainforests have been logged, and Indonesia is once again importing rice. So we are losing some of the most precious treasures of the planet, the crown jewels. The question is why, and part of that has to do with politics, certainly, but I think it also, I, I hope to convince you that it has something to do with some weaknesses in our science, in how we see the world. So one of the things that began with the era of five-year plans in the 60s, not just in Indonesia, but all over the world, wherever the World Bank uh, got busy, was the implementation of hierarchical control systems. But when anthropologists ask, how did they manage before they had five-year plans, right? The you manage, we produce system. So, question is, don't complex ecosystems like rice paddies require firm hierarchical control? Well, maybe not. Maybe there are different lessons about how to organize the world. So what I'll talk about tonight is partly about the sciences of complexity, sort of the Santa Fe Institute story, um, with reference to Balinese rice paddies, but I want to talk a little bit also about uh, Lisa Curran's work on the rainforests of, of Borneo and coral reefs, and in the end, something about time. So, Begin with complexity. Uh, 1995, the great uh, uh, biologist John Maynard Smith wrote in the New York Review of Books that he has a general feeling of unease when contemplating complex systems dynamics. This is after a week in Santa Fe. Its devotees are practicing fact-free science. Fact for them is at best the outcome of a computer simulation, rarely a fact about the world. So these ideas that we talk about in Santa Fe are new and unfamiliar. So one can ask, if these processes were really at work in the world, would we recognize them? So I'm going to give you the quickest uh, definition of what a complex adaptive system might be. This is from John Holland, one of the architects of this notion of complexity. So a complex adaptive system is a network of interacting agents in which they're trying to maximize something and what he discovered is that the aggregate behavior of the network that is formed by their interactions may be described without a detailed knowledge of individual agent behavior. So there can be emergent properties. So that's a nice and very general theoretical idea, but what I hope I can show you, the reason I spent some time at Santa Fe is that it uh, turns out this can be useful in understanding something very real. So off to Bali, island of Bali, where the Balinese have been growing rice in terraces since at least the 11th century. We know this from uh, uh, royal inscriptions of the time. They've also govern themselves in villages with a very ancient system of democracy. Now, democracies are quite rare in the world, uh, as you know. The ones that the Italian republics tried up in the 13th century lasted no more than a century in every case. But the Balinese have been, we believe, managing their rice paddies with groups called subaks, which are groups of men who share uh, contiguous rice fields, with a democratic system since at least the 12th century. So it's an interesting kind of experiment in democratic governments. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about rice paddies. They are artificial ponds in which the fertility of the water basically creates a kind of an aquarium, and the processes that go on in the water help to grow the rice. They provide the nutrients necessary to grow the rice, which is why we find terraces in Bali that have been producing two crops of rice every year for centuries. It's a great trick. And the control of water is the key to making that work. The reason it works is that volcanic rock is rich in mineral nutrients. Uh, let's see, I've got my little pointer here. So those are just the phosphate content of 
rocks in Indonesian volcanoes and Bali's somewhere down there. It's not actually one of the highest, but there's plenty of phosphate in the rock. And as the monsoon rains fall on that pumaceous rock, that, that uh, uh, very uh, light rock rich with these nutrients, they leach the mineral nutrients, which flows into the irrigation systems, and that's delivered finally to the rice paddies. So it's sort of a continuous delivery system for phosphate, potassium, uh, the main nutrients required by the rice. Nitrogen is fixed by a zolo, which grows in the water, so you have a kind of a perpetual motion machine. But the challenge for the Balinese to make this work is that uh, the island of Bali is a steep volcanic island just south of the equator, and as those rivers, as the rain falls on the slopes of the volcanoes, it slices channels down the slopes of the mountains, creating these kinds of fissures. So the Balinese need to get the water from the bottom of these ravines up to the top of a hill some distance downstream where they can grow rice, which means they have to build tunnels to move the water down to the higher slopes. And uh, we find inscriptions dated as early as the ninth century that refer to irrigation tunnel builders. So they've been at it for a long time, and they've honeycombed the island with their tunnels and terraces by now. So that's pretty clear. Water can provide nutrients, but it can also less obviously be used to control rice pests. So rice is vulnerable to a variety of things that like to eat it besides humans. Insects, which either eat the rice directly or carry bacterial and viral diseases which can spread through the rice, rats and so forth. So there are lots of things that like to eat the rice, but by synchronizing harvests over a sufficiently large area, it's possible to deprive the pests of their food and their habitat. So here in this slide you see, after harvest they flood the fields and there's nothing for the pests to eat. But that will only work if all of the farmers plant at the same time, generally they give themselves a five-day window. The fields there, you can see, they're all at about the same stage. They're all at the same height. So there may be rice pests in the field now, but later on, a few months from now, after those fields are harvested and flooded, nothing for the pest to eat. The success of this system depends upon getting a large enough area fallow at the same time because the pests can move. So if, if you get a kind of a patchwork system, if one field is fallow but the other still has rice, the pests can just move around or be blown by the wind. So the success of this plan, success of this method for controlling the pests depends upon getting the right scale of coordination to deprive the pests of their habitat, which depends upon their dispersal characteristics. Okay, so that's the basic dynamics. The way the Balinese organize this is through this thing called a subak. So a subak is, consists of all of the farmers who share water from a single source, like a spring or a, uh, an irrigation canal. And in the picture, what I'm trying to show you here is a tunnel. Excuse me, there's a, a temple where they will gather to make their decisions. And then there's the, the, uh, the rice terraces, which are managed by the farmers who maintain that water temple. Interestingly, in the meetings which the farmers have within their water temples, they set aside the rules of caste. The reason that's important is that caste is very important otherwise in Balinese society. They, they're divided into the a version of the Hindu caste system, but they take it very seriously. So when you speak Balinese, you have to first determine what is the relative caste of the person you're talking to, and then you use a different register depending upon whether you're, the person you're addressing is of higher or lower caste than you. So a lot of this hierarchical uh, structure is built in even to their language. But 
When the farmers get together to hold a meeting and talk about the management of their rice terraces, all that is set aside. You have to speak to, to your peers, to your fellow farmers, in middle-high register of bolognies, or else in the colloquial informal language that you use within your own family. If you start using trumping people with high language, then you can be fined, and it's very much frowned upon. So that is part of what makes this democratic system work. All right, so that's the sort of basic subak, and uh, what's interesting is that these subaks then form a hierarchical structure which sort of works from the bottom up. So here we have uh, the water temple network, subaks A and B. These are two subaks, there's the temple, but they both share water from this canal, which comes from that dam, so they belong to this temple here, and from time to time, once a year, they'll send a delegation up to their neighbors up here, and try to coordinate their irrigation schedule because the timing of the water released from this system is going to clearly impact how much water is available for their downstream neighbors. So in this way, they sort of build up from the bottom a hierarchical structure of relationships uh, among the Subox using the water temples. So the temples form a kind of network. Um, at the summit of the network, there is a crater lake. More or less near the real center of Bali, there's a lake which the Balinese describe as a sacred mandala of waters. So they imagine that Bali is surrounded by a salt sea, but in the center of the island, at the highest point, there's a, there's a lake which is full of uh, life-giving fresh water. In the lake, there dwells a goddess, and it, she has the power to bestow this blessing of water that makes things grow and also washes away pollution uh, down the flanks of her volcano. So. Water actually belongs to the goddess, and her temple is the supreme water temple of the island. Um, she chooses priests by inhabiting the voice of a group of priests who, how do you say, when, 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 an, when a priest dies, then other priests will go into trance. They believe that they are possessed by the voice of the goddess or some other deity who's connected to her retinue, who then speaks the name of the child to replace that uh, priest. So in this way, there's a continuity, somewhat like the Tibetan idea. Anyway, these priests uh, live up there in the village of Bhattar by the lake. They collect holy water from the points around the lake, and the farmers come up to collect that holy water as a token of the blessings of the goddess of the lake. The Balinese call their religion Agama Tirta, the religion of water. Each village temple controls the water that flows into nearby rice terraces. Regional water temples control the flow into larger areas. High up on the volcano Mount Batur, there is an enormous crater lake. The Balinese believe the lake is the home of the goddess of the waters, Dewi Danu, who makes the waters flow into the rivers and irrigation canals. The supreme water temple of Bali sits on the rim of the crater overlooking the lake. Once a year, priests give holy water from the lake to the farmers as a blessing from the goddess. First, priests ascend the crater to collect drops of water from the steam of the active volcano. Then the priests prepare the holy water for the farmers. A temple scribe writes letters on palm leaves inviting farmers to the temple. Delegations from over 200 villages journey up the mountain to bring offerings to the goddess.
At the Supreme Water Temple, the Gamelan Orchestra plays in honor of the goddess and the worshippers. Temple priests give a sujung, a bamboo container filled with holy water, to each village delegate. The delegations then carry the holy water to their regional temples. That's a temple Here, for ten Subaks. The water from the goddess is mixed with more holy water, adding the blessings of local gods and goddesses. Each delegate receives a sujung of this water to take back to his village. Each of them is the head of a Subak of the ten Subaks there, and now we're tracking one Subak. At the village temples, local farmers receive a blessing for themselves and their fields. A few drops of holy water are sprinkled on every field. This ritual symbolizes the sharing of water that forms a coordinated system of irrigation in Bali. Working together in this way, the Balinese have maintained the ecology of their rice terraces for over a thousand years. Okay, so um, so it's a rather idyllic system, but there is a hidden problem because in each case the downstream subaks are at the mercy of their upstream uh, neighbors for water. The guys upstream in any irrigation system have their hand on this so they control the water. The question then is why do they release the water needed for their downstream neighbors? Because the downstream neighbors can never give the water back. So why doesn't this lead to a tragedy of the commons as it so often has in other irrigation systems? Uh, we won't talk about the World Bank yet. So what's different, what's different about Bali? What makes it work? Okay. Well, we built a very, John Miller at the Santa Fe Institute came up with this very simple formulation from game theory that suggested an answer to that question. So imagine we have two farmers, upstream and downstream, and they have a choice as to whether they want to synchronize their irrigation system or not, planting or not. So if the upstream farmer is willing to give up some water, they both plant at the same time, then the downstream farmer is happy and he gets his water. If on the other hand, and, then, and the consequence then is they have a coordinated fallow period. They both harvest at the same time and that can help bring the pests under control because the pests don't move upstream to eat the upstream farmer's field. Suppose on the other hand they don't synchronize. So the upstream guy gets to keep more of the water, but on the other hand, the pests can come and attack his field. So it looks as though pests can give leverage to the downstream farmer if the farmers are thinking about pests in the context of this water allocation problem. So we wondered if that very simple formulation had anything to do with the, farmer, the way the farmers actually think about this thing, so we asked them. We asked 150 farmers in 10 box, which is worse? pests or water damage, water shortage. So here are the results. The upstream guys are worried about pests and the downstream guys are worried about water. Okay, and that seemed to be true in each of these 10 subox. So there is the makings of a bargain. Turns out our economist was right. You can also look at this at the next scale. In six cases, we had an upstream-downstream pair, upstream subox, downstream subox. So 
In this case, the agent is not an individual farmer, but a whole subak. Well, in that case, the pattern is even clearer. The upstream subak is worried about pests, and the downstream subaks in these six cases are worried about water. So that looked as though, actually to my surprise, that this actually worked out so well. They think about a lot of things, but this, this seemed to be present in the mind of the farmers and helps to explain why the upstream guys are in fact willing to engage in these bargains with the downstream farmers. However, this two-player game is unrealistic because, in fact, dozens and dozens of subaks affect one another. The irrigation systems are highly interdependent. There are lots of little subaks, dozens of weirs, and they're interconnected. So the real question is, how do they get it right, not at the scale of two players, but at the scale of, in the case that we studied, 172 subaks along two rivers? So I worked with a systems ecologist, Jim Kramer, who suggested that we build a simulation model and see how this might work. Uh, and at that point, I'd just come back from spending about a year studying one subox. So when he said we should scale up to 172, <laughs> I was impressed. But anyway, we did it. So here's a map. These are two rivers. The little squares, if you can see them, are meant to be the subox. The little kind of Christmas tree things are meant to be water temples. And the stippled lines are the boundaries of uh, catchment areas for the rivers. So Bear with me, this is pretty clear. What happens in this, in this simulation is, at the beginning of the year, each of these 172 subaks, the village-sized irrigation systems, chooses a cropping pattern. What are they going to plant? So it might be plant rice in January and August, for example. Then we simulate the flow of rain. The rain gets into the groundwater, the irrigation systems. The rice grows, and the pests eat some of the rice. We simulate all of those processes. And then at the end of the year, we calculate the harvest yields for each of the subox. Okay? So having done this, they, we then vary the scale at which they coordinate from everybody does the same thing to everyone does something different to water temple scale. We can actually identify what kinds of clusters of subox follow coordinated patterns based upon the traditional water temple system. And to no one's real surprise, it turned out that the water temple networks optimize the trade-off between pests and water. They get it about right, get enough water to each cluster of subox, and at the same time minimize the pest, um, uh, pest damage. So that worked. I mean, in other words, we, we, one can see that um, this water temples play a useful role in finding the appropriate scale of coordination to optimize those two opposing constraints. So I gave a talk much like this, I think it was eight years ago, at the Santa Fe Institute. And at the end of my talk, a researcher named Walter Fontana asked me a question. He said, this, that's very interesting, but it's really not surprising. Um, after all, the farmers have had centuries to get the scale right. Tell me, did someone have to design this system? Was it organized? Did the, did the Rajas have to work it out? Or could it have self-organized? And at that time, I didn't know what he meant by that. And he said, well, do you have to... Does, the, does someone have to impose this structure, or could the interactions between the subox lead to this kind of a solution, to the formation of a network? So that seemed like an interesting question. Um, and a solution was, the solution we tried immediately was to just tweak our little model a little bit, turn it into what's called a hill climber, to see if the water temple networks might pop out on their own. So the way that works is, start the same simulation, but let the computer randomly choose cropping patterns for all 172 subox. So each of the little... Uh, icons, upward triangle, downward triangle, they simply mean a random choice of cropping patterns. So a downward triangle might mean 
plant rice in October and I don't know, March, something like that. So we're randomizing the conditions of water, which will affect the dynamics of water flow, rice growth, and pest dynamics. So then we run the thing for a year, and at the end of the year, each subak compares its harvest with its four closest neighbors. So the little, I kind of got bored writing little circles there, but the little, little circles are supposed to suggest these are the comparison groups. So at the end of the year, I look around and see if any of my neighbors had a better rice harvest than I did. If so, I copy their cropping pattern. If I did best, then I stick with my cropping pattern. So that reinitializes the simulation, and we run it again. Uh, Jim Kramer, my colleague, thought this thing would yield, it would produce chaos if the model, they'd keep flipping back and forth as they tried first one pattern or the other, but we decided we'd run it anyway, and here's what we saw. So here's year one of a simulation. This is the random choice of cropping pattern selected by the computer. The average harvest is pretty miserable. It's about five tons per hectare because there's lots of pest damage and lots of water shortages. Ten years later, synchronized patches, which you may or may not be able to see, have appeared. So this group's doing one thing, that group is doing the same thing. And the harvest yields have nearly doubled. They've walked their way to a solution, and that solution looks very much like the water temple patterns. In fact, it's almost identical. And as we repeated these simulations, we found that it's almost impossible not to grow a water temple system. If we vary the pest constraint, if the pests are more virulent, then the fallow periods get larger. If the water is more of a problem, then the, then the patches get smaller. But no matter what the, the, the constraints are, a network will form given this kind of trade-off that will optimize the uh, conditions. So as this goes on, this, this also had another kind of interesting consequence. Here are, this, here are the yields, okay, rice yields, as time goes on in the simulation. That's the average, that's the highest. As time goes on, you'll see that the average yield is going up until it comes very close to the highest yield. That flags the attention of any evolutionary biologist because we think that one of the reasons that people or animals disagree is because of envy, disparities in benefits. But if everybody's not only doing well, but doing equally well, then there's no reason to be jealous. And in fact, as we asked the farmers to compare their own harvest to those, the average in their subox, you can't read that, that says, well, mine's the same, and that says that it's worse. So even, farm, even Balinese farmers you know, like to badmouth their harvest, but they can't get away with it in their Sioux box because, in fact, everybody does equally well and they do very well. So that suggested a way in which this system could have persisted over time. You can imagine that, and indeed from time to time, farmers decide to be renegades and they don't plan according to the schedule. It's possible to opt out. It's possible for Sioux box to become defunct, as we'll see presently. But over time, nature punishes you if you drift away. So over time, we can see a process in which, if not me, then my grandchildren are very likely to kind of drift back into this uh, pattern of organization because it is a very successful one. One more thing about this network uh, idea, because I think it, it's interesting to see that the point is that it, it may be a very general phenomenon. We discovered it in Bali, but it may be quite general. Here's K, that's the number of, with apologies to Stuart Coffin, the number of neighbors that we check in these simulations. So in the model world, not, not Bali, but in the model world, okay, how many neighbors do I compare my harvest with before I decide what to do. Well, that has an effect. If you, if you look only at three neighbors, then as time goes on, the number of subox that change strategies, that, dance, that, that flip back and forth, stabilizes with about one-third of them 
never finding the right optimal solution. They keep flipping back and forth. These are the guys who never decide what to do they, because there may be a solution, but they can't find it because they're not looking far enough out. If you go to k equals 4, then they find a solution faster. The network appears faster and fewer of them remain confused, okay? And as we look even further than 13, you get down to almost all of them can find a solution because they can see it. If, on the other hand, you look not at your immediate neighbors, but somewhere else in the system, for example, at, at the experimental farms, then you do get chaos. Then what happens is everybody keeps flipping back and forth, uh, identifying, you know, imitating the best farm in the entire uh, landscape, but that loses the signal from the immediate vicinity. This is exploring your own immediate neighborhood and optimizing conditions there. So that may be general. Anyway, it always succeeds, and the search parameter is important. Hope that's clear. Okay, so there's a complex adaptive systems explanation for water temples. Does that mean that they're really just a kind of a mathematical device? Well, I can't believe that. I'm an anthropologist. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about ritual a little bit. So... They devote a great deal of time and wealth and attention to the rituals that take place in the water temples. And remember that these temples are places where democratic decisions are made. So why do they do that? Why is it important? Well, it's characteristic of discourse of the Greeks, of the Romans, of the Italians of the 13th century. Anybody who's interested in making a democratic assembly work winds up talking about the control of emotions. And so that becomes the central focus of Balani's discourse on how do you make communities, how do you cope with uh, achieving consensual management. So Balani's cosmology, and I'll have to do this briefly, but it, uh, I hope you'll be interested, it posits a dualistic cosmos. The idea is that the inner world of the self contains everything that also exists in the outer world. And there are 202 components, by the way, of the inner world and the outer world. So... Given that presumption, there are two ways to think about it. One is the male way, the purusa, which actually is a high Balinese word for penis. So male power comes, through, through the, comes to the self, especially to males, through their clan, and it derives from the ancestor. It's something you inherit. It's what gives kings the power to rule. But pradana, in Balinese, they've modified a Sanskrit idea. Uh, it's the female principle, the female half of this cosmology, and it is collective and transformative. It's about growth. It's about fertility. And it is the pradana ritual cycle that exists in the water temple networks. So here are offerings in a water temple, which relate simultaneously both to the inner and the outer world, depicting them in perfect order as a kind of an ideal, relating to both worlds at the same time. So water temple rituals are intended to tame the passions and to create order. Um, it's a monthly meeting here of Subak heads in which they are, um, which they must set aside lineage competition and we have these rights of equality. And he's about to pour some very nice Balinese wine to the heads of the Subaks who've gathered once a month to make decisions about the rice terraces. But what they talk about mostly is not ecology, they talk about politics. <laughs> okay. These rituals of equality. Okay, so the notion is everyone's emotions, anger, joy, whatever, are comprised of the same elements. Anger, kroda, in me, is the same ultimately as anger in you. It's the same thing. And rituals are designed to align these elements of the inner world so that we can control the outer world. And here's another quick video clip. 
berat di atas 25 You can read this, right? So here's sort of the instrumental ritual, the sharing of water. Water. These are offerings that grew in the fields of the Subak. They're now putting them in the water that leads into that Subak. It's returning thanks to the gods of, of that system. But we wondered if there's something more to it than the simple giving of thanks. Here are offerings at a water temple. Each family brings one of these offerings. It's what grew in their fields. These are mudras aligning the inner world. They liken rice patties to jewels, and jewel is an important concept in Balinese ideas. A, a jewel is something which symbolizes the mind, but rice terraces like these, once they're flooded with the moonlight shining on them, look like faceted jewels, as the Subak had told me once. But that order will fall apart in a week if all of the farmers don't uh, systematically manage the, the terraces to maintain that jewel-like precision. So they say that the problem is really the same, the problem that, of, of creating a jewel-like rice terrace system, but it originates in the self rather than in the, in the mud. Okay, so I'll go quickly through this. I've kind of got interested in this, but quickly through. So there's a drive for universality and coherence. Um, in which they believe that the human microcosm is in intermediate between, it's sort of a platonic view of how the, how the world is put together, how the universe is put together. And it's reflected in uh, the way in which they symbolize life. So when you're born, then they take the afterbirth, components of the afterbirth, and align it in the household according to the directional symbolism, which also relates to sounds and colors and letters. In other words, they align you with the macrocosm. And at the end of your life, when you died, then they cover you with a shroud, which also depicts that alignment, although it shows the progression of changes that have occurred in your life. So there's a sudra, and you can see there are lots of different components of his body. A Brahmin priest has a simpler diagram because it's thought that he spent his lifetime trying to simplify the inner world and that's reflected in the diagram that is drawn over his, uh, his body. All right, so that's what I'm going to tell you about Balinese ritual because <laughs> we need to move along. So in the 1970s, everything changed uh, for excellent reasons. Indonesia at that time was also importing rice. Indonesia was poor. They needed to improve the agricultural productivity. The Asian Development Bank funded the Green Revolution and a new era of agricultural, expand, uh, agricultural management began in Bali, as elsewhere in many parts of the world, certainly in Indonesia. Um, but it had unintended consequences. So the basic ingredient was something they called a technology packet, literally packet technology in Balinese, which consisted of new rice varieties spread to grow rapidly and to take up chemical fertilizers effectively, plus those fertilizers, plus organochloride pesticides. And the farmers were urged to plant rice as often as possible and set aside the water temples. The planners of this system said it's perfectly fine to continue to have your lovely rituals in the water temples, but don't think this is a practical management system. 
Um, so this system, which developed, was developed at the Rice Institute in the Philippines, was moved to Indonesia. But within a few years, there were unexpected problems, which you can probably anticipate. Uh, the line was, miracle rice has produced miracle pests. If indeed all of the farmers plant at different times, it's like running our simulation model backwards, disrupting the pattern of coordination until you wind up with the uh, patchy uh, structure in which the pests can migrate from one field to the other. It's just like the simulation model, and that's precisely what happened. So the first variety of rice that they tried this with, which was named IR8, proved vulnerable to an insect called the brown planthopper, 2 million tons lost in 77. So the, the agronomists and the geneticists bred up a new variety of rice, which was resistant to the plant hoppers, but it proved to be vulnerable to rice tungro disease. That explosion began a few years later. Uh, so they came up with a new variety, IR50, which was resistant to tungro, but not so good with rice blast and helminthosporium. You see where this is going. So as time goes on, then they, the farmers were, were required to put on heavier and heavier doses of pesticides until finally by the 80s, they were flying the island, spraying the fields, and meanwhile the extension agents are reporting back to headquarters chaos in the irrigation systems. So we began to complain about this. The reason I got involved with the ecological modeling was really to convince the Asian bank that the temples had a practical function. They, the, the director was not happy with this in 1984, but we were happy. You know, eight years later, they sent teams. We talked to them, and in the end, uh, the Asian Development Bank agreed with us that the substitution of the high technology and bureaucratic solution was counterproductive, and in fact, they became converts to the water temple system. So that's a happy story. The planners have now dropped opposition to the water temples. In fact, they like to teach about them. They show our movie. Um, however, the farmers are still urged to buy these technology packets of fertilizer, and that's a problem because, as you've already learned, the volcanic rock is rich with nutrients. So here's a test that we did, adding phosphate fertilizer in six different fields, six subox from zero phosphate to the recommended dosage of 100 kilograms per hectare has no effect on yields. It's just wasted because the phosphate is already present in large concentrations. Once the government understood this, they allowed the water temples to regain control. But the green revolution still lingers. To this day, farmers add chemical fertilizer to this ancient, self-sustaining system. For the last 30 years, the farmers have been borrowing money from the village cooperatives to buy fertilizer that they don't need, applying it to the fields, it washes out of the fields immediately, flows back into the rivers and down to the sea, this little stream is flowing right out of those rice paddies up there. And as it comes down, it's, of course, carrying all the mineral nutrients from the volcanic soil, plus all that fertilizer. I mean, all the fertilizer that wasn't needed by the farms that is just washing down. So by the time it gets here to the sea, it's like a thin nutrient soup. And so the effect is you grow simple organisms like algae, the algae that you see growing along the rocks there. And that's what we find offshore, just blanketing the coral reefs. And we only find it in places like this, where you've got that kind of agricultural drainage. On the rest of the island, if there's no river carrying fertilizer, then the reefs are fine. But out there, the reefs are nearly dead. Stephen Lansing and his colleagues are gathering samples from reefs around Bali, trying to understand the complex web 
we humans are part of. They hope to help Valley in its return to harmony. Anyway, that's David Suzuki. So problem is all these nutrients flowing into the reefs and um, coral reef are adapted to low nutrient levels, so that's not a good thing. There's Jim Cramer taking samples uh, as one of the little streams emerges into the into the field. One more little clip. Uh, this is Dick Murphy, who may be here tonight, uh, talking here about. We have seen oh, you'll see. Massive colonies of uh, tabular or table coral. These acropora table coral. Some of them, the diameter of this uh, boat, and they're in perfect health. Whereas on the mainland, we also saw some pretty large corals, but most of the large ones were dead. And so that tells us that. In the past, the conditions were such, the reef was healthy, and those big corals lived long enough to really grow to a substantial size. But they're not alive now, so something's changed. So our conclusions are the technology packets of fertilizer are mostly superfluous. I have a Balinese student who's just got his PhD sort of proving that by taking measurements along a river for over a year. The excess phosphate and... and um, the excess phosphate's not good for the terrestrial ecology, and the excess nitrogen uh, grows the algae that destroys the coral, and one can see that through looking at stable uh, nitrogen isotope differences. You can actually get the signature of the kind of nitrogen that is growing the algae. Does it come from the sea, or does it come from the technology packet? So it's really a, a very foolish mistake. So why did we all, why did we miss all of this? Why did we miss all of this? Well, I think the answer is, if we think about what are the elements of a, this complex adaptive system that I've been talking about, it's water temples, which look like a religious system to us. That's what we thought they were. The festivals that are held in those temples. Here we see a, a priest from the, from the master water temple, and he's carrying a little silver cup in which he's got holy water from the lake, from the goddess of the lake, that if he were to stumble upon this temple festival and you see a guy in white with his little silver cup sprinkling water on, on uh, offerings, you're not likely to be thinking about control mechanisms, right? Synchronized cropping, and that's maybe a more obvious cue, but it took something to pick it up, I guess. And then the structure of the connections between the water temples through the holy water, which goes from the lakes to the canals to the fields, that really is the structure, and then finally, there's this dimension of the control of emotions, the cosmological order that allows the farmers to cope with the jealousies and disagreements that are common to everyone, including Balinese farmers. So, not an obvious system. If you wanted to look at the connections between two suboks in the hierarchy, you'd need to be there on the right day when a few old men in white clothes go up and collect some cups of holy water to bring down to the fields of their own subak downstream. So I gave this, this talk at the University of Michigan a few years ago, and I, at that point I was ending it by saying, and is this only in Bali? You know, where the, the complexity dynamics really should be characteristic not only of Bali, but they should be common if we're right. I mean, the, the trade-off between pests and water, for example, generates a network structure, but if the, if the farmers were growing roses and trying to control aphids, you should still get some kind of dynamic. So I posed that question, and Lisa Curran, who's a tropical forest ecologist who spent, well, she's younger than I am, not as long, in Borneo anyway, said, I have a, we got to talk. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lisa's research on the forests of Borneo. So, let's see. 
So Lisa has studied the dipterocarps. Those are the tropical hardwoods of which there are 12 genera and about 470 species. She's the real expert on she can identify from the seeds and the fruits and the nuts, you know, which kind of dipterocarp it is. Uh, but in, this, in the time that she studied them, most of them in Borneo have disappeared. Most of them are gone now. It's a tragic story. So why did our forestry planning go so far wrong? More five-year plans. Well, it's connected partly to, as Lisa found, El Nino, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, the weather pattern which circulates across the Pacific, which you heard about. We knew that ENSO, as it's called, the El Nino uh, cycle, changes weather patterns, right, from the Galapagos. It sort of takes the, the, the weather from the Galapagos and Borneo cycling back on a several-year cycle. But what we didn't know that Lisa helped clarify is that these trees, the dipterocarps, use ENSO as a signal. And what the signal does is to tell them to have a mast. A mast means drop your fruit. It means reproduce if you're a tree. So dropping the fruits and seeds, that happens for the, for the dipterocarps only during the El Nino years. So it's just a kind of a trigger signal. Um, we're supposed to get a new slide here. Uh, so here, are the, here you have, if you can see that, these are the El Nino years and these are the fruits patiently collected by Lisa and her and her team, the, the density of seeds dropped in the forest. So you can see it exactly tracks those El Nino years. Right? So that, now you see why Lisa wanted to talk about the water temples. Um, many species, because this is a tremendous pulse of food that arrives only in El Nino years, then the seed predators, which means lots of birds and uh, mammals, the bearded pigs, the largest migrations of mammals outside of Africa occur in, in, or used to occur in Borneo and El Nino years when the bearded pigs would have their babies. These are great big animals. So also the birds. So all these creatures would have, they, they, would, they, they will have adapted, interesting evolutionary dynamics. They will have adapted to cycle their reproductive um, activity for the dipterocarp mast, which then creates a kind of a master clock. It's kind of a clock in the heart of Borneo. As far as we know, this does not exist in other tropical forests in Africa or the Amazon. But then again, we haven't really looked very much. Lisa's begun to work in Borneo. We know so little about these things. But the point I want to make here is it's very much like the water temples. This is synchronized uh, fallow controlling the predators, right? The trees are doing pretty much what the farmers are doing, except in this case, the trees are extending their fallow period over the whole island. You know, that's a huge region. She's been working with NASA to see how large is the synchronization of fruiting, of masting in the dipterocarps, and it's enormous as far as we can see in Borneo. So that's what pulses food availability and keeps down the seed predation. It makes it possible for the dipterocarps to reproduce because um, it provides so much food that the seed predators can't eat it all. But the plans for forest reserves, the five-year plans, were based on the resident seed predators rather than the pulses, the large numbers that occurred during the El Nino years. So Lisa's done experiments showing that the seedlings can suffer 99 or 100% mortality during the El Nino years. The rest of the time, they would be fine, and therefore the dipterocarps cannot reproduce. So here you have, in 2002, from Lisa's science article, um, one of her science articles, the logged areas. The yellow is the logged areas, and the little green patches are what's left of the dipterocarps. There's not enough trees left for the mast. 
So there's been a reversal. Enso now triggers not the regeneration of the forest, but fires, because the microclimate is gone, it's no longer wet, the trees have been cleared, and not only will the forest burn, but actually the peat swamp will also burn. Lisa's in Borneo now working on that problem. And that turns out to be a lot of carbon emission. Okay, you lose the trees, so the trees are no longer, no longer fixing carbon. Then we have forest fires in the El Nino dry years, and now also peat fires. So we're talking about 0.8 billion metric tons of carbon per year, and the Kyoto global target for reduction was 0.5. So it's huge. We're not, you know, not to mention the loss of biodiversity. Okay, so we're moving along here. Two examples then of complex adaptive systems, one in Borneo, one in Bali, different dynamics, but in some way maybe in some ways similar dynamics, bottom-up control, emergent networks that worked and then were disrupted. But I want to end with another way of thinking about this, not just the complexity perspective, but a Balinese perspective. So maybe another way to think about the long now. So the Balinese have very different ideas about time, and here is a simple little board, which is a Balinese, it's called an uku or a tika calendar, and it looks like, if you could see it clearly, which you can't, but it's, it's like a matrix. It's uh, 30 um, what is it? columns and seven rows. Well, actually, it's nine, one on top and on the bottom. Funny-looking little thing, little wooden board. Let me explain what it is. So think about what our kind of calendar does. We have an Indo-European, in, in the Indo-European languages, we speak of time in a linear fashion. We think of time as a moving moment, right? The past is behind us, the future is in front of us, and the present is this moment right now in between the two. That's how we tell time. And that's actually the arrow of time, so to speak, as someone said, is um, embedded in our language because we make order of things by talking about tense, right? When did things happen? It's obligatory to speak in English or French or whatever in terms of past, present, future tense. That's how we talk about things. Balinese language, Indo, uh, excuse me, the Austronesian languages don't have tenses. They create sense in a different way. And they have a very interesting way of calculating time. I think it's the world's most complex, or at any rate, the most complete way of uh, thinking about time and it's in terms of multiple concurrent cycles, so time as dense. So let me just quickly walk you through what those calendars do, and this will just be quick, okay? So first of all, they have a lunar calendar, and we kind of have a lunar calendar, right, from the Romans, but they are accurate about it. So they give you, they count 15 days of the waxing moon, 15 days of the waning moon, but then they subtract a day every 63 days, and since the lunar cycle is 29 days, 12 hours, and 44 minutes, that keeps their lunar calendar accurate. Okay, so they're actually keeping track of lunar time in that way. They also borrowed from India the Ishaka calendar, which is a lunisolar calendar, which keeps accurate track of the solar year by interspersing intercalary lunar months. So these months are of different duration, and you stick them in at, at an interval of two or three years so as, to keep, so as to get it right and keep accurate track of the solar calendar. So the Ashaka calendar began in 79 AD, and that's what they use. And then finally, they have this uku. So what's the uku? It's 10 concurrent weeks. Um, and I hope I can explain this clearly. So we have the seven-day week, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Well, Balinese also have a three-day week. So the three-day week is Pasabatankajang. 
So today is Passat, tomorrow is Batung, tomorrow is Kajung, and it just cycles, right? It is concurrent with the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday week. There's also a two-day week. So today's Mungay, tomorrow is Papat. So that's also cycling along. There's even a one-day week. So uh, in the one-day week, there's only one day, Luang, and definitely today is Luang, right? Okay. So all of this is cycling, and I, didn't even, you know, I haven't got room to put on my little PowerPoint the 10, 9, and 8-day weeks. All of these concurrent. All of these going constantly at the same time. So time becomes dense. And here is now an attempt, this is what the Balinese are now compelled to do, to try to plot all that information on a Western calendar. So this is, uh, I can't even say, this is going to be the March calendar because they also have to keep track of our system. So in one of these little boxes, you're going to have the information to tell you what, what week, what lunar day is it in the lunar calendar, what day is it in the solar calendar, and what day is it in all of these ten concurrent weeks. Most people can keep track of a lot of this in their head, so it just gives you some clues, like, and you can't read it anyway, there's Gunung Duga, that's the fourth day of the four-day week. So all of that is going on. All right, so what do we make of that? Well, it suggests that time is dense. It suggests that the way to think about it is in terms of patterns that emerge from interlocking cycles. And that's how you schedule water temple rites, is by those multiple cycles, you know, water cycles. The, the duration of the calendar is 210 days, and so that turns out to be the most important cycle on the reason that little board has 210 days on it. Rather, you know, we, you, many ways you could do the uku. 210 days is the growth cycle of old Balinese rice. So the master calendar is the rice calendar cycle. But within it, you keep track of many other things. So for example, most of the time, nobody cares what day, is, day it is on the eight-day week. But when your child is born, the day of its birth on the eight-day week gives you a clue as to who it is, who's been reincarnated into your family, from the mother's mother's side, father's father's side. So human cycles are there. And the notion is that they're, you know, that you couldn't reach the end of this. There's so many different cycles going on. They're interlocking so many ways. All we as humans can do is keep track of the most important ones. So the three-day week is the market week. Uh, the market happens in one village one day, the next village the next, the third village the third day, and then comes back again. So that has nice advantages. Instead of the poor old retailers here who have to sit in their shops from 9 to 5 every day, they're there every three days, right? So you, they triple their market size, and there's lots of, you know, less of just sort of sitting and being. The reason it works is we have um, inscriptions from a thousand years ago. They, the, the market cycle never changes. If if this is the village and the market is on day Kajung, the day one of the three-day week, it will never change. So it's entirely predictable. So interesting ways to use time to create order and maybe save people some time. Um, they also use the metaphor of music. Judith Becker, years ago, a linguist, wrote a great thing called Time and Tune in Java, showing that you can also, this is how you think about music. Music is composed of multiple interlocking cycles. That's how gamelan music is put together, something like fugues. And so order appears if the cycles are integrated well, and it doesn't, of course, if they're not well integrated. So music and time are clearly metaphors for one another. That little image is from a a Balinese traditional manuscript called Prakempo, which tries to relate cycles of music and tone with letters and colors and gods and emotions and all those things. So it's one great package. Uh, and I'm at the end here because we began with John Holland's um, work on complex systems and his notion of what a complex adaptive system is. But his more recent book is called Hidden Order. 
So I want to suggest to you that there is an interesting hidden order here. It's taken me years as an anthropologist to begin to, you know, to see that these little funny little boards and things actually can hold very profound ideas. And I want to suggest to you seriously, if you're thinking about time, that this is a way to think about time that may be worth considering. Because this is, this is the time that ecologists think about, really. It's not the physics of time. It's the ecological view of time as having many cycles. Um, but if we don't think about those things, I think what I've shown you is a kind of a litany of horrors. We've made colossal mistakes. Uh, and the, my colleagues, the people, who, the people I work with in Indonesia, are very worried people. I mean, what, I, what I've seen in my lifetime, what Lisa's seen in hers, and you, you know, these stories could be multiplied, there aren't very many people trying to study these systems. Lisa's now dividing her time between Borneo and, and the Amazon, because there's still a lot left of the Amazon. We're just beginning to twig to the most basic you know, patterns. Complexity is giving us some clues, simple clues about what to look for, but in the meantime, these systems are collapsing uh, you know, right before us, and I, I'm sorry to say, People like us, we're the ones who are responsible for many of these changes. I mean, these, the, we, if we're going to continue to, to uh, push forward in what one geologist calls the Anthropocene, right, this new geological epoch in which human beings take control of the planet, we need to get smart fast. So that's my story. I need to acknowledge my many collaborators. This is uh, many years of work. Uh, and I think I'll just list them there rather than try to read all their names. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, that was awesome, Stephen. Thank you. A um, couple of questions. There's some coming up here still. Um, I'm curious how the, does any of this play out, looking at the pictures of the terraces, they're extraordinarily re refined artifacts. How yeah. do people manage the maintenance of that? How do you, you know, there, there must, how do you keep free riders and people uh, shirking their work and so on? Is that dealt with by the Subox or by what? That is dealt with the Subox, and I, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't, you need to read my book to get the whole story, because it's kind of a long story, but that is their central problem. They know how to build those terraces. That's not the problem. The problem is, how do you indeed get people to keep it up? Because the system can fall apart so easily. Mm -hmm. And so they devote a great deal of thought and attention to, to that. And partly it is a ritual system. You know, part of it is overt, but, but you know, how do you cope with people who are free riders? Mm -hmm. You can say in the end that the, that the nature will punish them, and in the next you know, generation or two, it'll all come right. But in the meantime, things can fall apart. Subox fail. We studied over a period of three years. I'm giving you a long answer, but That's it's good. just critical. To, so over a period of three years, I had two teams of Balinese researchers studying a, one mascheti, which means one collection of 14 subox. That's a lot of subox. We couldn't study them all all the time. So what we did is to have one group that was measuring kind of field conditions, how much rice is growing, what, what are the nutrient components, are the Subox uh, actually really planting at the same time or not? The other group went to the meetings, did five successive surveys, asked people, do you trust your Subox leader? What happens when things go bad? You know, we kind of went through all that. And what we found was three of those Subox actually failed during the time that we studied them, but all but one was able to put itself back together again. So it's a very precarious kind of, it's easy for things to fall apart. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's this tremendous emphasis, I think, on the ritual system, which encourages people to think, just end on this, you know. The ritual system says, is, emphasizes that 
the order within me can also be depicted as an order of our group. If we were a subak, all of us together would, would be performing rituals with, with offerings, which would symbolize uh, the kind of powers of order that come together from each of us. And they do that, you've seen in some of my pictures, the performance of those rituals, I think, is crucial mm-hmm. to keeping people in the frame of mind that they can, uh, this can actually work. A couple of questions from Kevin Kelly while he's going through everybody else's questions. Mm. Um, he notes that farmers are notoriously thrifty. So if there's actually no benefit from these uh, technology packets from the fertilizer, why would they keep on putting scarce money into that? It was, okay, that's a great question. Um, it, it, for a while it was illegal to plant. Farmers were told it was their patriotic duty. Uh-oh. And, and <laughs> what happens is the ag, the ag extension people <laughs> appear with the technology packets. They say, they just push it off the truck. Here we are in, in your village. Here are your technology packets. You don't have to pay us now. We're just going to deduct the cost of these inputs when we buy your rice from you. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much choice about it. For a while it was even illegal not to not to follow the prescription, and nobody was measuring. You could, at first, you know, you need, for high-yielding rice, you need more nitrogen fertilizer than the natural system provides. Once you start using the, the chemical fertilizers, soil fertility declines, so pretty soon you actually do need this stuff. Mm-hmm. You just don't need as much. You don't need any potassium at all, mm-hmm. but, um, but who knows, because there's several different inputs that they're putting on their fields, and who knows which one is making an effect. So given time... They could, they probably not only figure this out, but we can help, you know, by mm-hmm. using a colorimeter and actually testing, right? Um, okay, second question from Kevin. Uh, rice terracing is common in China, Philippines, Nepal, and throughout Asia, which Kevin has walked all over. Are there parallels with Bali and those very similar systems? I keep hoping to have a student who will help figure that out. I think that there must be, um, but I don't actually know. I don't. Kevin know. got any? All right, from Watson, where are you? Waving his hand right there. Um, what other complex adaptive systems that you've been exposed to, uh, what other complex adaptive system that you've been exposed to is most similar to that of the irrigation system in Bali, I guess in addition to Borneo? Do you see other uh, systems like this that have this, uh, I mean, for example, the, the synchronized pulse of pest defeating and so on? Well, you- Okay, let me go on a little bit. You could make an argument that that's what Adam Smith was writing about. It's what the, mar- the market does something like this, right? Buyers and sellers form a network, and if everybody is joined in that network, that simple network, then the idea, the basis of microeconomics, right, is that everybody's satisfaction is maximized and the goods all get moved around in the right way and, and all is very well. That, however, is very different from the... So that's kind of a complex system with a very simple structure. You just need to connect buyers and sellers. Balani uh, systems, sort of like that. What happens is that if you connect up the, the farmers and they interact, but not only with each other, also with nature, and nature rewards them or punishes them for what they do, then you, get this, you also get an optimization solution. However, the difference is the farmers can't act completely selfishly. They have to cooperate or it doesn't work. So you get, so, and it's a little more complicated structure because it has to take into account the ecological dynamics rather than just the uh, social interactions. Well, speaking of social interactions, a question from Howard. Um, how does the Subak system cope with, cope with egomaniacs and sociopaths? <laughs> Well, there's one Subak head who uh, who was kind of a thief, and uh, 
people would complain that, that others were stealing water. And what was he going to do about it? And he would say, go ahead. What do I care? So this system at that point fell apart. And uh, the... Okay, this will take a minute to explain. Maybe it's interesting. So, so Balinese are very tolerant of misbehavior because they believe in karma. And they believe that if you misbehave, you will reap the rewards of, or rather the, the consequences of what you do. So, to challenge, if you live in a rice village and your grandparents lived in the same village, you've been there forever, it's a small, closed community, people know each other, picking fights is really something you you want to be very careful about. So they're very patient about it. Um, but in the case of that guy, some year, during the course of the time of our study, he atoned for his sins, resigned as Subak head, and the Subak was able to reconstitute itself. So there is something about the kind of tacit social pressure that, can, that, that they have great faith in, more faith than I would have had. A uh, question I have is where continuity plays into this. The, the model you ran showed that basically the system... Uh, took shape in 10 years. Do you think it t- took shape in 10 years, 1,000 years ago? No, well, I think we actually did some archaeology, and what mm-hmm. I think happened is people started experimenting with small-scale irrigation systems, in the, first on the coast and then in the mountains, and they sort of grew. And there came a time when you'd have, uh, you'd have several subox along an irrigation line, and they'd have to begin to cooperate. And it grew because they were able to use this temple system. You can compare it to Java. There's a whole chapter in my book about Java where things didn't work out that way because they had broad, flat irrigation systems. Bali could easily not have achieved this, the level of terracing that they have. I think it's, it's because of the invention of water temples that they were able to create these, the, they were able to extend the terraces. They're, they're irrigation tunnels that go on through kilometers. You know, there can be a 10-kilometer system winding its way underground and above ground. And that, for that to work, the guy at the end, right, 10 kilometers down, has to believe that he's going to get his water reliably or it's not worth digging those tunnels. So the question really is a sociological one. How can you have enough trust so that these things will work? One more word on that. So we, I took an archaeologist who'd work in the Mayan, Bern Scarborough, and we dug soil cores in a very ancient water temple to see how old we thought it was ancient, and then along the irrigation canal to see if we could figure out how old it was, you know, down to the end. So five meters down, we found uh, our best guess is it's about an 800-year-old system. So that means that it's been around for a long time. And the point is the guy at the end has been able to receive his water delivery through, those, uh, through that very long period of time. That's what's, you know, that's what's kind of neat about it. Yeah. Really. <laughs> uh, here's a question from Stephen Hill. Who's where? Right there. Uh, these technology uh, interventions seem well-intentioned but naive. We are now entering an era of cheap collaboration mediated by the Internet. How can we benefit from the wisdom of successful complex systems in creating these collaborations? Well, my honest answer is we need to go, it's kind of, I'm kind of sympathetic with Maynard Smith, we need to go from simple models of complexity to empirical cases. We've got some new tools now, and we need to apply them and see if things like this might exist. Not exactly like this, but we should be a little more creative in using some of the tools that the physicists and mathematicians have given us to see if they might exist in other places. That's what I think. Arthur Young has a question right here. Uh, Since as a Caucasian you are a representative of those who brought the Balinese the Green Revolution, which disrupted their ecology, why were you trusted? What did your team need to do? 
not sure everybody trusts me, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not like that. It's not about Caucasians and Indonesians. It is about hierarchy, I suppose. But I'm a professor, and they respect professors, especially if they... Professors who speak Balinese are likely to get a real hearing. In fact, they're too likely to... to they've put too much stock in what I have to say. <laughs> I, I love the readability of these questions, by the way, people. This is awesome uh, penmanship here. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Wilson has a very readable question. Are there... Cycles of expansion and contraction in the proportion of land under cultivation or other underlying cycles over El Nino and generational effects. Does self-regulation lead only to balanced constancy and are such cycles also reflected in religious cultural ideas? You know, the density of time you talk about with all these different uh, cycles. Have we just heard about a few of them tonight? Yeah, I have to be cautious here. I mean, we, we don't archaeologists move in packs. Lots of them working among the Maya. There are only a handful who work in places like Bali, so we don't really know very much. What we do know is that the, there was a process of expansion of rice cultivation, but it's now actually contracting because of the uh, tourist industry and the you know, new land development. Farmers, it's become, um, farmers own small patches of land. It takes a lot of labor to grow rice. It's not very economically productive, so there's a temptation to sell their rice paddies, particularly if... Um, if they can get a lot of money for it along the roads and hotels. And once that process begins, then the subox can fall apart. So uh, if we want to collect pests, for example, for our ecological work, we go down to what used to be subox around the towns. They're usually not subox anymore. That land is very rapidly folding up. And, um, and so there's actually a process of contraction happening now. Although, given what's happened to the tourist industry in Bali, who knows? I don't really know. I mean, that may change because uh, tourists aren't going to Bali anymore in such numbers. There's tourism cycles and real estate cycles also entering <laughs> right. this whole process. Right. Question from Sarah. Um, it is fascinating that this works with a monoculture crop. Is there any uh, application of this methodology that would assist with the collapse of U.S. Midwest monocultural farming? I'm no expert. I mean, here in California, you know, we pour a lot of pesticides on cotton crops, and it I know only anecdotally from talking to Davis agronomist that something like this fallow system would control pests here, but I'm, I don't want to go too far on a limb on something of which I know very little. But the basic principles seem pretty clear, right? I mean, as I say, it's water and pests in this case. We could have, we wrote a paper a few years ago about that's a two-factor optimization. You could be trying to optimize three things at once, and you could still get network structures emerging, right? So in principle, it seems to me it's worth looking at that question. Mm -hmm. Here's a question from Ray. Um, and a common one, you know, what is genetic modification going to bring to this kind of game? With the advent of genetically modified seed stock, is there a potential for traditional planting cycles being disrupted? You must have had some of that already with the Green Revolution rice, which was modified, as I recall. Right. It was kind of an error in the first place. They thought, well, you can't have, they said, traditional water temples, this is the Asian bank talking in the 70s, traditional water temples are optimizing a system based upon slow-growing, low-yielding rice, and therefore they're not appropriate for high-yielding agriculture. The flaw in that is that the temple structure is actually a flexible system. 
they make decisions all the time about changing their cropping patterns. So they're perfectly competent at growing new high-yielding varieties of rice. They just make the appropriate adjustments. So there's nothing really wetting it to that. Um, what's happened, however, is that the genetic, most of the Balinese native varieties are gone. They've simply been lost, but they're still in the mountains, some that have been preserved. And happily, I should tell you this, this is sort of good news. The Indonesian government has decided that they are going to, in principle, support organic farming now in the future. So we have experiments going on um, uh, with Balinese in which they're trying, trying to quantify the, the effects of switching back to organic farming and the use of native varieties of rice. And you can race them then, see how they do against each other. <laughs> um, question from uh, Jonathan Schechter out there. Uh, are the Balinese rituals actually useful in explaining Zubak coordination, or is it a purely selfish model where each Zubak copies its high-productivity neighbors? Isn't that just as explanatory? Do you need all this religion stuff? No, I mean, there's, sort of, there's the model world. I think here's what I want to say. In the model world, my point is we can build a really simple model that will grow water temple structures, um, and that's not what really happened. That's just a kind of a mathematical proof of concept. In the real world, I want to reemphasize, the problem is getting people to agree to coordinate, to be, to be cooperative at levels that are basically, un, well, I don't know, unprecedented, but rare rare level of cooperation is required to make this system work. Otherwise, the fact that you have water temples wouldn't work. The farmers still have to cooperate. And that, I think, is the tough part. Well, there's a question from Chris Tellus, who uh, surfs off of Bali. Uh, <laughs> given the state of the coral reefs, is there any cooperation between the farmers and the fishermen? And this would be, you know, sort of, does the, can the temple process include them, or is that just hopelessly two different worlds? Well, the fishermen in Bali, by and large, are not Balinese. They're Buganese. They belong to different groups. They're not many Balinese fishermen. They don't, the ocean, is, that hasn't been their way of life. So uh, there hasn't been much of that. However, part of the, 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 you saw in some of this stuff on the diving, there are dive, diving, scuba diving has become an important uh, resource for the Balinese economy. So the scuba dive operators are very keenly interested in um, trying to preserve the coral reefs. And are the scuba divers reading your stuff? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we keep trying. We put, you know, some of this we even put on Balinese TV. Uh -huh. uh, so, but it takes time. Because, you know, this is another question. And anthropologists went through in the 50s and 60s, applied anthropology and all of that. As, you know, an anthropologist goes in and sees some pathologies in the system. Uh, what is your responsibility and what is the right kind of action to take uh, to try to, to fix things you see going wrong as an anthropologist? Well, I'm very alarmed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see between the four, I see the loss of the genetic diversity. I see, I see you know, I don't want to run this on the ground, but I mean, we're making catastrophic mistakes. Borneo rainforests are nearly gone in the, mm -hmm. the length of time I've been working in Indonesia the richest, oldest, most diverse terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. Most of the coral reefs are vulnerable, and we don't know very much about them. I mean, that's, you know, we, 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 when I say that, this is based upon minimal research. We have not prioritized this. So it's all going to be over before we've even noticed. We've, we have really said, if you think that the, I, all right, I'm in touch with the scientific community that looks at these problems, there are not many people working on these problems, and we are not, they're all sanguine about what the results will be. So as an anthropologist, I, I mean, it sort of transcended anthropology to me. I, 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 well, yeah, let me leave it at that. I'll go on too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, George, uh, George looks like Canciani right here. 
Uh, were the Dutch influenced by the Balinese water engineering systems or the Balinese by the Dutch? <laughs> there was a very interesting controversy when the Dutch, Dutch conquered Bali in the late 19th century, finished the conquest by 1908, at which point they put in uh, uh, controllers, they put in a colonial administrative system. And uh, Bali was kind of the prize assignment for a while in the 20s and 30s. It was the best place to be a colonial officer in the whole of the Indies. Mm. And they were very competent guys. And some of they got very interested in how the Balinese irrigation systems worked. The Balinese are very interested. The, the Dutch are really interested in irrigation systems. So there was a controversy that has gone on, and it's even continued in anthropology, about uh, what was the extent of royal control over irrigation versus how much of this was actually done from the bottom up by the farmers. I'm, and I should tell you that there is a German, there are several anthropologists who, disagree with me, Brigitte Hauser-Schoblein, German anthropologist, thinks that really the master water temple was a royal temple and that there was a royal role for irrigation and that I've kind of missed, uh, that I've misunderstood this system. Um, I don't believe that, but anyway, um, but so, so I'm not, I'm, I should tell you that this is not the consensus view, this is just... It's perfect that you said right. a German anthropologist. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> Well, oh, she's a competent anthropologist, but she's not an ecologist, and she doesn't know anything about complexity. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. So what's still mysterious there for you? When you go back to Bali, what still keeps you puzzled? And if you could bear down and do some more research there, what would you focus on? Well, right now, there's a, we were trying to figure out a way to monitor, to expand from studying Balinese um, agriculture to the other rice-growing areas of Indonesia because the problems that I've described in Bali are, there's a uniform, the technology packets are everywhere. Mm -hmm. So uh, Somebody asked where do those come from, by the way? What's the source of the technology Well, the packets? Indonesians have, from natural gas, they produce a good deal of their natural gas production goes into urea, into nitrogen fertilizer, which they sell at a, a mm -hmm. roughly half the world price to their own farmers. That's a lot of money. And if our results are correct, most of that money is going down the drain, mm -hmm. okay? So uh, we feel a real sense of urgency about getting on top of that. However, because the government has now shifted to supporting, at least in principle, uh, a change towards organic farming, the question mm. now is how to implement, implement that. So I think we're really kind of in a race. Uh, I'm working with the Balinese. Uh, there are, you know, there's, there's a good university in Bali, Udayana University. There are uh, Kartini. There are a number of Balinese agronomists, people working on this problem. So that's kind of what we're focused on right now, that and then the... Uh, the forests. What's, what was the source of the shift to interest in organic farming? You know, it's an, I don't know. I mean, we've been plugging away, mm -hmm. trying to make this case, but I don't want to claim credit for it. I don't really know what led to this change in the in the uh, uh, government policy. So it wasn't me, that's for sure. But uh, but uh, well, let's go back and find out because that's that would be interesting. Because in a sense, that's a self-correction happening at yet another level of the hierarchy. Yes. And you know, did that come through the Internet or from people getting educated somewhere besides Bali? Or, you know, well, I think it's partly the cost of the fertilizer this, the, because, you know, they're losing a lot. It's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that are so foregone, foregone uh, profits from their natural gas. Okay. Uh, say a little about when does your book come out? Perfect order? April, they tell me. April. Well, I'll send out a summary to everybody on this, and I'll put a link on Amazon to that. But uh, say just a little of what's in the book in addition to what we saw tonight. It's much, you don't hear about Borneo, but it's very much this story. It's just, uh, it's essentially the story I've told you tonight in a little, a little more coherent form. <laughs> that was about the most coherent lecture I've seen, and thank you for it very much. Thank you.